If you could spend an afternoon with an expert in any one topic or idea or trade or skill or hobby, who would you want to spend an afternoon with? And what would that expert be an expert in? There's lots of options. Who would you want to just like, like drink in their knowledge, ask a bunch of questions, um, just learn how they do what they do or how they think about what they do? My guess is that everyone in here has a sense of what that would be for them. But let me ask you a second question. What are you an expert in? Is there something that if I just like teed you up, I said, hey, talk to me about anything for like 15 minutes. Is there something that you could talk about, just ready to go, no preparation needed, just good to go for 15 minutes? I, let me tell you what a couple of my things would be. I could talk to you for 15 minutes about 90s pop music. 90s pop music is the best pop music there ever was. Be happy to tell you all about it. I could also talk to you for a solid 15 minutes about why both Star Wars and Star Trek are fantastically great sci-fi franchises. We could go for 15 minutes easily about that. What for you? What about you? Maybe look at a neighbor and share something. Share something. What's something? You had to talk for 15 minutes. You get 10 seconds to go. Go. Yeah. All right. I, I bet... I bet we have lots of experts in the room. I'll be excited to follow up with all of you. Whoever I bump into, I'm going to say, what are you an expert in? I'm going to want to hear it. I learned this week, I, I just went ahead and Googled weird things that people are experts in. Um, there are lists. There are lists. But some of the ones that are interesting to me is that there's experts in ballpoint pens, not fountain pens, which I know people collect, but there's actual experts in different ballpoint pens, and they will help match you with your ideal ballpoint pen. Um, there's also experts in presidential pets. Like they want to know like what pets different presidents had and they can tell you all about them. My favorite, I think, was that there's experts out there in the color blue. Like apparently, <laughs> if you need to know the perfect color blue for a particular situation, you can consult an expert on the color blue. We're going to see two experts interact in our passage today. Two experts. One of them is a topic expert. This person, it just, it, like their life is based on, as a matter of fact, their whole identity in this passage is based on the idea that they're an expert in something. And they're going to talk to someone else who's an expert in something, and he's probably a topic expert as well, but he's also an expert by experience. And these two are going to approach each other, and they're going to have a conversation, and it's going to be a conversation that many of us have heard before. You're going to be familiar with this passage. But what happens when these two people who know a lot about the same thing, have a quick conversation about that thing. And, and, and what's that interaction going to be like? It's part of a series that we started last week called Wanting God, and we're just kind of going to these places in Scripture that are just very obvious, just really super obvious, right there on the surface. We don't have to guess what God needs from us, how we're to respond to him. Last week, we looked at Micah 6, 8, right, where God says, here's what I require of you, like, like do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. And so we're going to see something similar in the New Testament today. So would you read with me? We're going to be, again, in Mark chapter 12, and we're going to just pick up in this story at verse 28. This is Mark 12, verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he, that he is Jesus, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, 
The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no one besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would, um, your Holy Spirit would meet us in your word, that you would nourish our souls, uh, that we would learn more about you, and that we would be motivated uh, to trust you in love. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, I worked really hard to get all C words for you this morning, so I hope you appreciate it. We're going to look at four C words. They're going to help us understand the story. We're going to look at the context of the story. We're going to look at the commands in the story. We're going to look at the uh, challenge that's uh, related in the story and then the comfort uh, that we need to see out of it. So the context, the commands, the challenge, and the comfort. Let's go ahead and start with context. Here's what we're going to do. I want you to imagine we're all uh, astronomers and we've got a telescope and we focused our telescope right on this story and we're zoomed in really good. And what we're going to do just as we, for our context, we're just going to take a step back each time and examine a wider part of the context. So let's, let's imagine we're looking right in at this story and we've looked right in at this dude that the Bible simply describes as a scribe. Now, in your imagination, you may have pictured someone, maybe he's a little bookish, uh, maybe you think what his job is, like he has, maybe he's got some rolls of parchment, and he writes things down on it with an ancient-looking quill pen, and maybe he's got ink on his fingertips, and maybe he's kind of, kind of really studious, and so his, you, you can imagine that maybe he takes dictation, or maybe he writes things out for a living, and that's the mental image that you have of a scribe, and, and what you have in your head isn't necessarily wrong, but let's fill out the picture of what a scribe was in Jesus' day. Here's what you need to know about a scribe. It's like a title, and it's a title for someone who was an expert in God's law, an expert in the Hebrew scriptures. And so he would have them memorized. He would know what they were all about. He would be, his job would be to teach them, to present them, to preserve them, to advocate for them. He's kind of like a lawyer for God. He kind of had all of these like really uh, important uh, places or things that he would do in the life of Israel at that time. And he could be from different kinds of backgrounds. So there could be scribes that belonged to like the political party of the Pharisees. There could be scribes, scribes that belonged to the political party of the Sadducees. But his job was to be an expert in the Jewish law. But here's what else you need to know about the scribes. Throughout the Gospels, almost universally, and certainly in the Gospel of Mark, the scribes are presented as opponents of Jesus. They're constantly challenging him. They're constantly confronting him about what he's doing. The scribes are, are really, the scribes and the Pharisees are presented as kind of these villains in the gospel stories of Jesus. They're the ones who just never get what he's up to. They don't like that he teaches with authority. They don't like that he seems to speak for God. They don't like the people that he hangs out with. They, don't, they just don't like Jesus, and they actually think he's dangerous. And so you can even see that that conflict between scribes and Jesus plays out even at the end of 
of the chapter we're reading right now, if you glance down at verse 38, you'll see Jesus say this. It says in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes. You like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus has some not nice things to say about the scribes. He says, look, they're kind of false. They pretend to be one thing. They like the power. They like the influence. They like the way that people like it, look at them. They like the, the, the role that they play in society. But they're actually dangerous. Beware of them. On the outside, they seem to be doing all the right things. But on the inside, they're trouble. So the scribe is, is someone who's presented in this gospel as someone who's opposed to Jesus. As a matter of fact, one of the resources I read this week said when you read scribe, you should be thinking this is the antithesis of a disciple. So if a disciple is a learner and a follower and a truster, a scribe is a challenger and a doubter and a wonderer. Like, like, so a scribe is the opposite of a disciple. But here comes this scribe. And he's encountering Jesus. So if that's the zoomed-in moment, let's, let's zoom out our context a little bit more. And let's see what the scribes are trying to do at this moment. We're actually told at the beginning of the chapter, if you look back at, at Mark 12, verse 13, you'll see what? And they sent to him, and the they is the religious leaders, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So the very first part of this chapter is set up as a challenge for Jesus. These religious authorities are coming to challenge Jesus and what he's doing. They want to trap him. They want to get him. So into the middle of that comes this scribe and his question. Let's zoom to the question. What does he say? He says, hey teacher, he he says, what commandment is the most important of all? Important has to do with primacy. It has to do um, with being first, but it's also the idea of something that supersedes others. So that word important is sometimes translated first. So when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God first in that verse and important in our verse is the same thing. Or when Jesus says the first will be last, first in that verse is important in our verse here. So what comes first? What's the, the first among all the commandments is his question. And so commandment means what we think it means, like order, rule, direction, So the question is, what's the most important of the commandments? And we might just read that as a question, but as we've zoomed out of our context, I want to explain to you something that's going on in Jesus' day, and that's that people loved talking about this stuff. This is what religious leaders did. They were constantly asking questions about God's word, about the law. As a matter of fact, there was this ancient Jewish tradition of asking questions very, very similar to this, or even this exact question. What's the most important thing in the law of God? And so they had these categories. They would say, well, some laws are heavy, and some laws are light, or some things that God says are great, and some things are little. And they would summarize, and they would try to fit things together, but they would also analyze and try to pick things apart. And they were constantly asking questions about God's word. As a matter of fact, very famously, there was a rabbi teaching right around the time of Jesus' birth. His name was Hillel. He was a very famous Jewish teacher. People still read him. You can read his stuff now. But uh, there's a famous story about Hillel that a a Gentile came up to him and said, here's what I'll do. I'll convert to Judaism if you can summarize the whole law while I'm standing on a foot. 
So he says, he says, really, if you can summarize what God wants for me in a short enough time for me to stand on one foot, I'll believe this stuff. And Hillel said to him, really famously, Hillel said, um, what is hateful to you, don't do to your neighbor. That's the whole law. Everything else is commentary. Go and learn it. <laughs> that was Hillel's thing. He said, what, what's hateful to you, don't do to someone else. It's like, you know, Hillel's version of the golden rule. Jesus said things really similar. You guys, this was a kind of thing that the religious people in Jesus' day were talking about. What's the most important commandment? And they were talking about it for reasons that you will be familiar with. My guess is that in this room right now, there are many of you who have said, I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to read the Bible this year. And you get your Bible, and maybe you sit down on January 1st because you're really diligent and awesome, and you have a new you know, plan for the year, and you're going to read through the Bible this year. And you open it up, and you start in Genesis, and you get going, and you may have steam, and you may make it through Genesis, right? And you're like, well, that was a story. Some of that's kind of weird and a little uncomfortable, but I'm doing good, right? And then you get into Exodus, and there's some okay stuff, and like Moses, yay, you know, let my people go, and they cross over. And then Moses goes up on a mountain, and then all of a sudden, it happens. You guys remember when this happens? All of a sudden, you're just reading rules, right? All of a sudden, you're reading these really detailed descriptions about how to build a tabernacle and how many cubits long a thing needs to be. And all of a sudden, you find yourself, you're reading all these instructions about what kind of thread to make clothes and curtains out of. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself into Leviticus and into Numbers and into Deuteronomy, and you're like, what is happening? Like, why? This is so boring. I don't understand it. Why do I need to worry about what happens when my ox gores someone, right? And what do I need to do? Like, why, why are these like uncomfortable rules about trapping someone in adultery or when, when they're bleeding or they've touched a dead body and we get somewhere at the beginning and we just go, I can't do this anymore. It's, I don't even know what's happening here. This doesn't make sense. Is it, has anyone had that experience? Right? My guess is that many of you, you, many of you I bet power through and you just get through, I'm going to do this. And then you look back on that section of the Bible and you're like, oh, that was weird. I don't really know how to make sense of that. Some of it's uncomfortable, some of it I don't like. It makes God look strange and difficult, and it means that the people I encounter who I talk about God, they think I believe that stuff, but I don't think I really believe that stuff, and what's happening? Well, our friends in, in Jewish day, they had similar questions. I think sometimes we have this idea of scribes and Pharisees and we think that they just kind of had this long checklist of things that they had to do to be right with God and that was their motivating religious principle. Well, that's not really true. They knew that many of the commands in Scripture didn't make sense in their world. Right? There's all kinds of commands about the tabernacle. There's all kinds of commands about the land that they lived in or the wilderness wanderings. They knew that didn't matter to them. It didn't apply to them. And so they worked hard to try and figure out what's going on in the law. And so these really, you know, these scholars, they would debate a little bit, but they kind of settled on that there were 613 commandments in the, in the scriptures. And they said, well, 248 of those commandments, they're positive. They're things that I should do. And 365 of them are negative. They're prohibitions. They're things that I should skip. And, uh, and some of them matter and some of them don't, but they all might reveal something about who God is. And so the wider context that's important for you and I to understand is that this was part of the religious discussion of Jesus' day. And so when the scribe comes up to talk about Jesus, he has some of the background that's similar to ours. 
He's embedded in a wider context of asking questions about what is this God doing? What is this law for? What is it really, what's really happening in the Old Testament? And then he's part of a narrow context of religious conflict. He's part of this narrow context of like, hey, I don't like you and what are you teaching and you seem outside the bounds of what's acceptable and and they have this kind of conflict. And then he has this really, really, really narrow context of Jesus has come in to Jerusalem and he's stirring things up. This conversation happens the week of Jesus' passion. So probably within 72 hours, Jesus is in the tomb from, from this conversation. It's important context for us to know because this question matters to you and I. Wouldn't it be great to know? I mean, how many times do we say, I would, if I just knew exactly what God wanted, I would do it. And here's Jesus going to tell us exactly what God wants. Look down at Jesus' answer. He says in verse 29, here's the most important commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. Well, it's interesting, right? Because the, the, we, we should notice first, the scribe says, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus gives two, right? So we're, okay, wait, hold on. So we've got to ask ourselves some question about that. And you get the sense it's kind of right on the tip of his tongue. He's ready to go. But many of you may know, but let's point out what, what may or may not be obvious is that Jesus' answer is just a direct quotation from two places in the Old Testament. So he quotes to the expert something the expert should be an expert in. And the first thing he quotes is Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, we might as well just read it right now. Let's read exactly what it says. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is called the Shema. Some of you guys may know that. Shema is the um, Hebrew word for uh, to listen or to hear so that we describe this passage of Scripture and a few other verses that get added onto it. As the, as the Shema, because it's the first word of the, of the phrase. And you guys, this was the equivalent, this was the ancient Jewish equivalent of our Apostles' Creed or Lord's Prayer. It was as common and as commonplace to them as, as the Lord's Prayer is to us. They knew it. They knew what it meant, and Jesus quotes it here. He says, here's the most important command, love the Lord. Now, some of you eagle eyes in here, congratulations, you get a gold star, you see that the Deuteronomy quotation has only three things we're to love God with, and Jesus has four. And there's fun things to explore in that. I'm not going not gonna to do it. <laughs> we don't have time. But there's fun things to explore. Jesus adds in uh, loving God with your mind. And, uh, and so he quotes there from Deuteronomy, but then the second part of what he commands, he quotes from Leviticus. Let's look at that. Here's what Leviticus 18:19 um, says. Leviticus 18.19 just says um, that you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So notice two things really quick right off the bat. Notice that both of these commands that Jesus quotes are from the Old Testament. Jesus is saying this is who God has been all along. 
Notice also that both of these commands are grounded in who God is. So in the Leviticus passage, we see, I am the Lord. And in the Deuteronomy passage, we say, we see what? Like, I'm the Lord, your God, right? So both of these commands are grounded in who God is. It's significant that Jesus is saying, here's what he wants us to do, and it comes from the Old Testament. Remember who he's talking to. Remember the context into which, into what he's speaking. So notice the first part and the second part are both shaped around this word love. Love becomes, for, for in this passage, love we have to understand is a wholehearted devotion that involves all of our life. And so Jesus says, love your God, and we have repeated all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, all of the faculties, all of the things that make me me, all of the things that make you you, all of me is to be directed in love towards God, in devotion to him, in affection for him. And it may be obvious, but it would, it would be important for us to say here, think about it. Think about what's happening here. Someone has said, what does God want the most from us? And Jesus' answer is simply, love me. Here's what I want the most from you. I want, want you to love God. And so many times you hear us up here preaching, and we point out that when the scripture says you, we always say, hey, it's a, we miss it in English. It's frequently you all. It's almost all the time you all. But this is the exception. This you that Jesus says here, you shall love the Lord your God, is singular. So friend, you listening right now to my voice, you sitting in this room watching online, this is God's command to you as an individual. Love me with everything in you. Love me, not half-hearted, not halfway. I don't want you to just claim me with your mouth and then go live a different way later. I don't want you to play at loving me when it's convenient and then when it's inconvenient, you have to go on about your life. I don't want you to just sing songs at church and then say that you love me and then forget about me until it's time to come back in a week's And This command of God is, is all-encompassing and it's been what God has been about from the beginning. He wants human beings to love him. And what's revolutionary here is that Jesus connects loving God with loving others. He thinks the two go together and they can't be separated. And so he says, oh, and by the way, when you love me, here's the greatest command. When you love me, you love other people too. You have to have a life that's defined by this love, this affection, this genuine concern for the other's welfare and a genuine concern for what God wants for me. And don't you just think, wow, would it, could it be nice if it was any one of the other 613 commands? <laughs> because this one is hard. To have a life that's shaped by love for God and a life that's shaped by love for others. Jesus, I think, makes it even harder when he says you need to love your neighbor as yourself. I think sometimes we read that as and we think, oh, that's as much as I love myself. It's not. It's in the same way that I love myself. So I need to love you in the same way that I love me. And here's how I love me naturally. You didn't have to teach me to love me. You didn't have to teach me how to put myself first. You didn't have to teach me to always make excuses for the way that I do things and to blame other people for the exact same things when they do it. 
You didn't have to teach me how to cover over my offenses. No one had to teach me to see myself in the best light. And Jesus' command here is that we would do those things for our neighbors. Many of you guys know that when this story is recorded in Luke's gospel, this is where we get the story of the Good Samaritan because the scribe is recorded as saying, and who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which basically means anyone, everyone is your neighbor. Any human being that you and I encounter, Jesus is saying you need to love them in the same manner in which you love yourself naturally, quickly, easily. Love of God and love of neighbor go together. They can't be separated. This is what's revolutionary in Jesus' words here. And it's why Jesus now switches. Instead of saying this is the important command, he says this is the greatest command. He changes the word. He says this is the command that is preeminent. This is the command that is splendid, highly esteemed on a grand scale. Here is the command that is beautiful, not just at the top of a list but the command that is most important, loving God and loving others because they go together like peanut butter and jelly and peas and carrots and a burger with cheese on it. Because if you don't put cheese on your burger, what's wrong with you? There's a challenge in this. There's a challenge in this. Because if you're like me, you realize this is hard. You don't have to command people to do things that, easy, that are easy. Like, no one told you at the beginning of your life, now, look, I need you to breathe every handful of seconds, <laughs> right? It comes naturally. We do it. No one has to tell us to do that. We tell each other to do things that we know are hard. My favorite example is this. You know, I grew up going to the public pool all the time when I was a kid, and I feel like every pool I've ever been to has a massive sign of rules, right, that is right there at the entrance, and there's always one rule at the very top that's in all capital letters and, like, usually bold, and you guys know what it is. It's like, no running, right? No running. I always felt like that was the hardest thing to do, right? No running. I want to run at the pool. I want to run and jump in. I want to run and chase my friends. I want to have a good time. We don't have to tell people to do things that are easy for them to do. We have to tell them to do things that are hard. There's an implicit challenge in this command because it's difficult. The New Testament writers pick up on this. As a matter of fact, John records all of the time kind of these sayings where Jesus, he records in his gospel in, this, you know, in the same week that Jesus is going to say, here's the greatest command, love one another, right? Here's a new command I'm giving you. Love one another as I have loved you. He's going to record later in John 5. He's going to say, look, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Like this is the New Testament writers pick up that we should be doing this and that it's very, very, very hard. Here's part of the reason I think it's a challenge. Part of the reason I think it's a challenge is that it's especially hard because it is possible to keep the commands of God and not love him. It is possible to do the things that, that God would want us to do. It is possible to do things that are quote-unquote right and still not love God. There's stories of this in the gospel there's the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, what must they do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, um, you need to keep all these commands. And then what does he say? You remember he says, I've done that since I was a kid. And then Jesus says, okay, go and sell everything you have and come follow me. And it says that he went away sad because he was very wealthy. 
And what you see is that the rich young ruler, he could keep the rules, but he couldn't do the thing that it took to show love to Jesus. Or you have in the story of the prodigal son, you have, you have the, the older brother, when, the son, when his younger brother comes home and the father's going to throw a feast, the older brother, remember what he says? He goes to his father and he says, I've done everything you've commanded me. And you're going to give him a party? And what you realize is that the older brother could do all the right things, but he didn't love his father. And so there's a challenge. There's, there's a problem for us because sometimes we can float above life and do the things that we have to do while our heart is far away. But if that's true, we know we can also grow in love for God and others. And then we can naturally desire to keep his commands. It's like a rhombus in a square, right? Every square is a rhombus, but not every rhombus is a square, right? It's the same thing, right? Like, to love God is to keep his commands, but keeping his commands doesn't mean that you necessarily love God. This is a challenge for us. So I have a very good friend. Uh, We worked at the same church um, together previous to this church, and uh, so I I will allow him to remain nameless because (laughs) the story is funny. But when you work at a church, here's a funny thing that happens is that when there's a funeral, sometimes they leave behind flowers and flower arrangements because they just can't fit them all or they want to give some to the church. So frequently there's a funeral at our our old church, they would leave these, these displays of flowers behind. And here's what my friend would do. He would be like, awesome. And he'd either like get some of the flowers out of the displays and put them together, but more frequently he'd just take one of the flower arrangements and he'd take it home to his wife, which is a nice thing to do. Here's flowers for you. Some of you guys may see this coming. Here's what he didn't do. He didn't say they were from a funeral today. (laughs) He let his wife believe that he was bringing flowers home for her. (laughs) And there may have been a guilty party who at one point didn't realize that was what was happening and said, oh, do you like those flowers Jamie brought home from, oh, I said his name, we know, brought, home from the, brought home from the funeral today. And she said, what? And I thought, oh, no. And, uh, and here's what happened. Jamie had to admit to his wife that he had been bringing flowers for her, that he'd really just been grabbing off the counter as he walked out the door to go home, right? Um, you can do the right thing. You can do the right thing. And have it not be motivated by love. Here's the thing. There's a comfort we have to pick up on as we close. Because if you're like me and you get here and you're really, you're, maybe you're just tracking and you just sit here and you go, Jocelyn, this is so hard. To hear the call of God on me, myself, that I'm to love him with everything that I have. And that out of loving him with everything that I have, I might love my neighbor in the same way that I love me. Like, it's just too hard. I can't do it. And maybe that's okay for you religious experts. Or maybe there's some people who are just really good at following Jesus. But it's never going to be me because I can't do it. And it's too tough. And you're asking too much. And you may be sitting in the pew right now. And you may be maybe just even right now in your mind making excuses for why this life of love is not within your reach. Just can't do that. I can get close to it. So I want to say to you something that Jesus said to the scribe here at the end. Because he turns to the scribe and he says, and when the scribe affirms what Jesus has said, 
and said, yeah, love is more important than everything else. Jesus said what? He said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. One of the commentators put it like this. What's not important here is that Jesus said these things. What's important here is that Jesus did these things. What's important here is not that Jesus puts this call on us. It just feels like something that could crush us because we know we can't live up to it. What's important to us is to know that Jesus was dedicated to living these things out on our behalf. And so when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength, here's what Jesus knows. He's the only one who will ever be able to do that. He's the only one who will ever be able to do it in its fullness. And when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he is the one who knows he will only, he's the only one who will ever be able to fully do it. So when he looks at the scribe and he says, you're not far from the kingdom of God, what he's saying is it doesn't mean you need to work harder to love God and to love others. It means you need someone to do it on your behalf. Jesus actually tells us that the greatest love is just to lay down your life for your friends. That's what he did for you and I. So this morning, to the extent that you feel the weight of this, to the extent that you feel, Jocelyn, I agree, I believe that God calls me to love him with everything that I have, and I agree that love might be the answer to the context that I find myself in, and I agree that love, that love is probably the way that I need to feel towards other people, and I just can't do it, then what I want to say to you is, you are not far from the kingdom of God. point here is not that we would be able to do these things perfectly, but that we would trust the one who did them perfectly on our behalf. And as Jesus goes to the cross, as he gives his life for you and I, we might see there the perfect life we should live, the death we didn't, and the love and the forgiveness that he demonstrates towards us. And out of that, we live in obedience to what he asks us to do. Not because we need to be better people, but because we know we can't be. Friend, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Let's pray. And I confess that sometimes this call to love, this like all-encompassing, all of me, everywhere at all time, call to love just feels so beyond my grasp. But I thank you by faith and by the work of your Holy Spirit in me, I know that Christ loved perfectly in my place. So God, I ask that as we come to know that, as we come to recognize that the, that the love that you live towards others and the love that you live towards your Father, that that life is, is counted towards our righteousness as we come to you in faith. God, I pray that then we might be motivated to live in love ourselves. And it would pour out of a gratefulness 
He would pour out of a new identity, a transformed heart that acknowledges, I can't do these things. But I am so grateful that Christ has done them for me. And we ask that in your precious name. Amen.